It's giving someone something that they don't deserve. And of course, salvation for us is by grace through faith. We don't deserve to be saved. Our sins have separated us from God. And yet God, because He loved us so much, it said, that He sent His only begotten Son, that whomsoever should believe upon Him should not perish, but should have everlasting life. That's grace. It's given to people who don't deserve it. And that's you and that's me. And sometimes, as in the the passage this morning, we see someone receiving grace and we think, wow, that's amazing. But you know what? In chapter 3, when Jesus was communicating with Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, a member of the Sanhedrin, do you realize that the grace that he extended to Nicodemus was no less surprising or astounding than this woman at the well? Now stop and think about Jesus' ability to minister to people. Nicodemus was a religious man, very prominent. The woman we'll read about today was an immoral woman. We don't even know her name. Nicodemus snuck into Jesus' presence at night. Jesus encountered the woman at the well at noonday. Nicodemus was named. He was someone we know. We know his position, his prominence. This woman, we don't really know much about her other than the fact that Jesus called out the fact that she was a notorious sinner within her community. And we'll talk a little bit about that. So whether it's the religious man who's prominent and everybody knows or the unknown immoral woman, Jesus meets them where they are at. And that's what we see happening in this gospel, in the gospel of John, all the way throughout. In chapter 9, Jesus will minister to a blind man, a man born blind from birth. And Jesus will represent himself to that man born blind as the light of the world. In chapter 11, Jesus is going to encounter two sisters who are grieving at the loss of their brother. And Jesus is going to present himself to them as the resurrection and the life. Jesus, as he's reaching out to people, always takes into consideration who that person is. It's not just a stock ABC process. Who is this person that I'm speaking to? What is their story? Where do they come from? What do they need to hear? I mean, ultimately, the message remains the same, the message of salvation in Christ. But how Jesus approaches those people and how he speaks to them. Nicodemus, an aging man. Jesus tells him, you've got to be born again. This woman who comes to the well, Jacob's well, to retrieve water. Jesus tells her, you need living water that will flow over into everlasting life. So Jesus meets each one of us where we are at. He communicates to us in ways that we can understand, but the message is always, you need me. Jesus Christ is the center of it. We'll talk about that a little bit this morning too. So open up your words to John chapter 4. One of the things I've I've had to adjust to as I've become begun to preach again is the reality that when everybody picks up their phone and starts to look at it doesn't mean 
that they're not paying attention to me. A lot of you have Bibles on your phones. I understand that. I'm sort of old-fashioned. I like the book. But um, I do have a, the Bible on my phone, too. I use it often uh, where I can get reception. So, um, so if you're opening up your phone, that's good, too. So chapter 4. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Of course, this is speaking of John the Baptist. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, Jesus is not in competition with John. Jesus and John have ministries that mesh together. John ultimately says he must increase, I must decrease. John was the forerunner. He was the one that proclaimed the coming of the king and said, make straight your paths for the Lord. But the Pharisees were taking advantage of this. And, and understand too, sometimes we read the Bible uh, in a vacuum, but understand that Jesus and John were not the only itinerant preachers going around Israel at this time. There were numerous itinerant preachers that were going around, gaining followings, some of them. We read about that when Gamaliel, the, the Pharisee, talked about that in Acts. So there are other, others that are preaching, but John and Jesus are gaining significant followings. The Pharisees hear this. They're trying to split the, the work of John and Jesus, and Jesus is not going to allow that to happen. So he leaves Judea and heads back to Galilee. And it says in verse 4 that he had to go through Samaria. Now, in the map, if you'll look at an Old Testament map or a New Testament map of the time of Jesus, what you'll see is up in the north of Israel is Galilee. And right to the south of Galilee is Samaria. And just south of Samaria is Judea, where Jerusalem is. However, the observant Jew never went through Samaria. The, the Jews did not associate with the Samaritans, and we'll talk about that in a moment. So they never went through Samaria. They would always go through Perea or Transjordan. They would follow the Jordan River up around Samaria to get to Galilee and from Galilee up to Jerusalem. They never went through Samaria. But here it says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now, why did he have to go through Samaria? Because he had a divine appointment. The Holy Spirit was prompting him, directing him, telling him that there was going to be ministry that he would accomplish there in Samaria. So the had to go through was not necessary as relates to the travel. It was necessary as relates to the ministry that Jesus was going to accomplish. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. So here we see the humanity of Jesus. He had been journeying for a few hours since the early morning. He is tired, he is hungry, and he sits down by this well, which was a typical place to, to gain um, uh, access to water, obviously, and food. The, the disciples go into the town to get food. And while Jesus is sitting there at the well, in verse 7, we read that a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Now, this is unique and unusual right on its face because typically speaking, the women who would come to draw the water would draw it in the early morning or in the evening. Those were the typical times to draw water. 
So the fact that this woman is coming at high noon in the heat of the day tells us something right away. It tells us that she is isolated from her community, that she is not welcome to come when everyone else comes to the well. She is coming at noon. And so she comes to draw water, and Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food, and the Samaritan woman said to me, said to him, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, the Samaritan race emerged after the Assyrians had conquered the northern kingdom of Israel in about the 7th century B.C. The Assyrians came in. There were the ten northern tribes. Assyria was able to conquer the northern kingdom, was not able to conquer the southern kingdom of Judah, But they did conquer the the northern kingdom, and they removed the ten tribes from the area. That was typical of the Assyrians. When they conquered a race, they would remove them from their homeland and distribute them, disperse them throughout the Assyrian Empire to diminish their power and their ability to once again rise up against the Assyrians. So the Assyrians removed the majority of the people from the northern kingdom of Israel. And they replaced them with other nations, other people groups. But there were a few Jews that they left in the the land. And these were the very poor people. And these people uh, intermarried with the nations that had come in. And they began to develop a, a new, really, race of people that was part Jewish and part a variety of ethnicities. When the Jews came back from Babylon a couple of hundred years later and reestablished the temple and uh, the identity of the Jewish nation in Jerusalem, the Samaritans came to them and wanted to be a part of that reestablishment of the nation of Israel. But the Jews would not let them. They said, you have no part in this because you are a half-breed people. You have watered down literally the race and so they would not allow them to be a part of the rebuilding of the temple and from that point forward the jews and the samaritans were at odds with one another ultimately the samaritans developed their own religious process they built a temple on mount gerizim which is very near uh, by where uh, jesus and this woman are talking in fact it's probably within view of jesus and the woman at the well as they speak the temple had been destroyed in in the second century uh, by the maccabees who who were um, in control of the country at that time and the samaritans had developed a religion that was based upon the first five books of the bible the pentateuch they believed that moses was in fact a prophet but that after moses was no prophet in fact they were looking for the prophet that uh, moses talked about in deuteronomy chapter 18 verse 15 the prophet that would come after him that they were to look for so they were looking for that prophet but they did not accept any of the other books of the old testament just the first five books And so they're religiously at odds, they're ethnically at odds with the Jews, and there is a great deal of animosity between them. Not only that, though, not only is this woman a Samaritan, almost even worse for the Jews, she's a woman. In the Jewish religion, the the woman had a very, very uh, low standing. 
The Pharisees taught that it's better to burn the law than to teach a woman. In fact, observant Pharisees would not even acknowledge their wives when they saw them in public. So this is not only a Samaritan, but it's a woman. And here's a Jewish rabbi asking her to assist him in getting some water. This is extraordinary. This is totally, I mean, in the culture, this would have been so amazing to see. People would have been blown away. And in fact, the disciples were blown away. And we'll, we'll read about that in a, f- in a few verses. So Jesus asks her to give him a drink. And I love this because Jesus is always going for our heart. That's what he wants from you. He doesn't want your religious observance. He doesn't need your tithes and offerings. He wants your heart. And that's always, as we read through the Gospels, what Jesus is going for when he's reaching out to people. is their heart. Now, where is our heart? The Bible says that where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. So Jesus is going after this woman's heart, and he's asking for her to assist him in getting some water. That is what she has come to do. She has come to retrieve some water. And Jesus is asking for her assistance. He's opening up this conversation in an extraordinary fashion. Seeking her treasure because he's going for her heart. Will you give me a drink? And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. In fact, the well exists still to this day. It's over 100 feet deep. So this woman is astounded that he said this. And she said, how are you going to get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? So she's engaging him. She's debating him. When Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, it was much more of a religious contemplative talk. Here this woman is engaging in a debate with this Jewish rabbi who has begun to speak to her. How are you going to give me living water? You don't have anything to draw with. Who are you? You can't be greater than Jacob who gave us this well. And Jesus responded to her, Everybody who drinks this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So this is the thing that every one of us has to deal with and address at some point in our lives. What are we really pursuing? What's really important to you? What are the things that truly matter in your life? Are they material things? Is it possessions? Is it prominence? Is it some kind of respect and appreciation from others? If it's something like that, Jesus is going to tell you that you will never, ever be satisfied. You will never, ever be truly fulfilled and satiated. Because material things can only satisfy in a very transitory, temporal way. What does it profit, a man, Jesus asked, if he gained the whole world but forfeit his soul? Yeah, you might be able to dip down into this well and retrieve some water, Jesus is saying to this woman, but guess what? You're going to have to come back tomorrow 
and you're still going to be thirsty. Because material possessions, material position and prominence will never satisfy you. But if you drink of the water that I can give to you, of course, Jesus is alluding here to the Holy Spirit and the new birth, then you will have a spring of water that wells up to eternal life. And the woman is intrigued. and She says to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. So she's taking him very literally, just as Nicodemus did. And just as in John chapter 6, when we get there, after Jesus had fed the 5,000, they did. They were following him around, thinking that he was going to be able to feed them day after day because he had fed the multitude with a few fish and, and a few loaves. Very difficult for us sometimes, I believe, to take that leap from the material, physical, tangible experience that we all have and enter into spiritual thinking eternal thinking seeing beyond what your eyes observe to what the holy spirit reveals that's what she's struggling with that's what most of us struggle with at some point in time but jesus is illuminating notice that first she she points out that he's a jew Second, she calls him sir. Here, very shortly, she's going to call him a prophet, and ultimately, the whole town is going to recognize that he's the savior of the world. And this is so true of all of us. We have this sort of growing experience with God. We don't come into God's presence and understand everything right off the bat. We have this sort of peeling away of our physical eyes where we're depending upon our physical eyes but layer by layer we begin to see things more spiritually we're looking for a good time in this world that's sort of where it begins but ultimately as we see that this world cannot satisfy as we understand that all that this world has to offer will ultimately prove to be empty we begin to have the layers peeled away, and we begin to look spiritually. The woman said to him, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to come back here and draw water. Jesus told her, go then, call your husband and come back. She replied, I have no husband. Now this is interesting. I want you to think about this woman. We'll just jump ahead. I want to go read the rest of verse 17, and I want to talk about this for a moment. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is that you have had five husbands, and the man that you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. So here's the first revelation to us, or second revelation, really, because the first was that she was coming to get water at noon. This is the second revelation of this woman's standing in the community. She's a loose woman, an immoral woman. She's had five husbands. She's living with a man who currently, uh, currently who is not her husband. She's somewhat of an outcast within her community, within her town. So what kind, what kind of thinking does a woman like that go through? What is her perspective as she's interacting with this Jewish rabbi. Stop and think about that for just a moment. How does she interact with men? 
What is her connection with or context to men? She's used by them. She's abused by them. She's discarded by them. Jesus says, go call your husband and come back. Now, Jesus knows because the Holy Spirit has revealed to him through a word of knowledge, Jesus knows that she, what her situation is. And she responds, I have no husband. What is she thinking in her mind? Some people will suggest that she's just trying to be evasive. And that's a possibility. She's trying to be evasive. I don't have a husband. But she's also possibly presenting to Jesus I'm available. Now, that's not so easy for us to talk about here in church on Sunday morning. But if you think about this woman's background and where she's coming from, what her experience has been, here's a man, a Jewish rabbi. He's showing interest in me. He told me to go to my husband. I don't have a husband. So things are good if you're interested. I point that out, and I, want, I point that out because you have to understand where this woman is coming from. Sometimes we put biblical characters in a box that we have created for them, and we don't stop to consider their life, that they were real people experiencing difficult, sometimes, circumstances, as I believe this woman was. She had been discarded. She had been used. She had been betrayed by one man after the other. She was a commodity to be used and abused, and that's how she thought about herself. But Jesus here, and I don't believe he is condemning her when he points out she's had five husbands and is li now living with a man. But he is drawing her into conviction. You cannot have conversion of the soul without conviction of sin. The Bible's very clear on that. The Bible's very clear on that. You cannot be converted until you've been convicted, and that's what Jesus is doing. I know you're background. I know your history. I know where you're coming from. And it's a place of sin. Now, just as I said, we can look at this woman and say, oh, wow, Jesus called her out. She was a sinner. Boy, did Jesus pick that one and, and, and paint the picture well. But you know what? Jesus told Nicodemus the same thing. Nicodemus, you must be born again. Unless you're born of water and of the Spirit, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God, Nicodemus. So the religious man and the immoral woman, the conditions are the same. They must be convicted of their sin before their soul can be converted. So she says to him, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And this is so typical of people. And, and for those of you who've ever engaged people in, in conversation about Christianity, you're trying to witness to them, share your faith with them. I personally have experienced this quite a bit. People tend to get into religious discussion with things that are tangents. She begins to talk about where should we really worship? Where is the location that true worship happens? You know, it's sort of like the person, okay, you're, you're telling them about Jesus Christ, and they said, How, did, did Adam have a belly button? How many angels can stand on the head of a pin? 
you know? They, they get into all this other stuff that doesn't really matter. Jesus draws her back into the, the main point. He says, woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews, and that is true because the Messiah was going to come from the Jewish race. The Messiah, in fact, was speaking to her. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. So there's this balance of the, the Holy Spirit coming within a person, the new birth, and filling a person, and leading that person in worship. It's no longer a strict liturgy, a prescribed routine that we have to go through in order to worship God. Jesus is saying, you must worship God in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's not to say that liturgical approaches don't include the Spirit. They certainly can. But don't depend upon the liturgical approach, those different things that you do to lead you into worship. Depend upon the Holy Spirit, Jesus is saying. And we also must worship in truth or based upon the Word of God. And ultimately, truth, as we have talked about a few times, is found in Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no way to the Father, Jesus said, but through me. So Jesus is telling her, you're worried about where to worship. You're, you're thinking about this liturgical approach to God as though you can reach up to God and, and impress God by where you worship. And Jesus is saying, no, no to that. He said true worship comes because the Father is seeking people who will worship in such a fashion, people who will worship him through the new birth of the Spirit and through the truth of the Word of God found in the Son of God. I find it fascinating that God is seeking worshipers. It says here, these are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Now, have you ever thought about why God seeks worshipers? Why God, in fact, uh, allows people to worship him? Is he an egotist? Does he need to have his ego, you know, built up? No. Worship is an absolute must because of who God is. It's the only proper response that we can give as creation to the Creator. And so the Father is seeking people who will worship Him, but worship Him in the proper way, in the power of the Spirit, through a new life, a new creation, and in Jesus Christ. The woman says, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When He comes, He will explain everything to us. And Jesus declared to her, I, the one speaking to you, am He. And the translators put in the He. Literally what He says there in verse 26 is I am. In the Greek, it's ego emi, or I am the self-existent one. Jesus is claiming to be God here. He's telling her, I am the Messiah. I am God. So the woman, at this point, the disciples are returning, coming back to the well from the town, surprised to find him talking with this woman. But no one asks, why do you, 
what do you want or why are you talking with her? They had learned at this point that Jesus defied convention. He did not always follow the pathway that people thought he should follow. They're surprised, but they know better than to ask, what's going on here, Lord? And then the woman leaves her water jar and goes back to the town and says to the people, come and see a man who came and told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Now, that little phrase there at the beginning of the verse, she left her water jar. There's nothing in the Bible that's accidental. This is God's word. God intends to put things there. She left her water jar. What does that signify to us? She's been filled with living water. She doesn't need this water jar anymore. It's overflowing in her now, bubbling over to eternal life, just as Jesus said it would. She leaves her water jar behind. She takes off, goes into Sychar, tells the people that I've met a man. Who is this man? Could he be the Messiah? He knows everything about me. And somehow, her testimony, her witness to the people in the town had an impact. They began to come with her out of the town to the well to find out for themselves. Meanwhile, the disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So the disciples, thinking very literally, saying, who fed him? How did someone get him food? We, you know, we were all together. But Jesus is, again, teaching a spiritual truth out of a physical reality. They did go get him food, and he probably still was physically hungry. But he was more satiated by doing the will of his father than he was eating food. Man does not live by bread alone, by every word that proceeds forth from the mouth of God. You know what I'm talking about. You know what Jesus is talking about here. When you have been in the will of God and you have been doing what God calls you to do, is there any better feeling? Is there any more rewarding experience than doing what you know God has called you to do in your life? I don't think so. I don't think so. And Jesus is teaching them this. He, say, he says, you guys have a saying. There's four months to harvest. In other words, there's plenty of time. We don't have to worry about things right now. We still got time to work on this. But I tell you, open your eyes. Look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. So he's saying, this woman went into town. You guys went into town. Did you bring anybody back with you? But this woman ran into town. And look, even now, the townspeople are coming with her because of her testimony. The fields are ripe unto harvest. And the harvest brings a crop for eternal life. talks about this in Daniel Daniel chapter 12 it says that the person who is a soul winner, the person who brings others to Christ, literally is storing up wealth in heaven. 
Read it. It's in Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. And that's what Jesus is saying here too. There's a crop for eternal life. Every soul you bring into the kingdom, every person you introduce to Jesus Christ goes into your account. You're building up wealth in heaven. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Interesting, back in John chapter 3, verse 23, it says that John the Baptist was baptizing at Aninan near Salem. Now this was very nearby the village of Sychar, where John was baptizing. So it's very possible that John had disciples within the community of Sychar. John had, had tilled the soil here, had sowed the seed. And now because of this woman's testimony, these people are coming out to see if indeed this is the Messiah who John was preaching about. Many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We are no longer believing just because of what you said, but now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. All the woman did was go into town and said, This man has revealed everything about me. Could he be the Messiah? Come and see. You know, this is one of the things that Spencer talked about in his class on personal evangelism that, that I think is so effective is each one of us has a testimony, an experience with Jesus Christ, don't we? Yours is different than mine. Mine is different than yours. But each one of us has a testimony of how we encountered Jesus Christ and what he did in our lives. And that testimony cannot be refuted by anybody. I mean, they can argue about whether or not Adam had a belly button, but they cannot refute your testimony because it's your experience. And all you have to do is say, this is what he did for me. Come and see and make up your own mind. And that's exactly what the woman did. Now, there's some lessons that we can draw from, from this passage of Scripture. First, oftentimes it's the broken and discarded by the world who are the most willing to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31, Paul said to the Corinthians, he said, take stock of yourself and look. There's not many among you who are wise, many among you who are noble, many among you who are prominent. God has chosen the weak things of this world, the foolish things to confound the wise. So don't ever look at a person and suppose that that person's station is beneath the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who was the one who won an entire village for the Lord? It wasn't Nicodemus. It wasn't the twelve. It was the woman by the well. Secondly, we will, as we witness to people, we will share with them Jesus Christ, they will not necessarily immediately come to full fruition of faith, a full understanding of who Jesus Christ is. She started off by saying, you're a Jew. Why are you talking to me? Then she called him sir. And then she perceived that he was a prophet. But ultimately, the community understood he was the Savior of the world. And that's how it is for a lot of people. There's a growing awareness of who Jesus Christ is. Third, 
The fields are ripe unto harvest. Outside these walls are people who need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you should not say, well, I've got to be more experienced. I've got to be more skilled. I've got to be more uh, educated about the gospel before I can share my testimony, before I can go out and witness. No, the fields are ripe right now. There's no way that the woman at the well knew anything more about Jesus Christ than you guys do. And yet she won her whole community. The fields are ripe unto harvest. Let's get out there and do the work. And the work involves all of us. And it involves different aspects of who we are, what we do. For example, some of us are sowers. We're out there sowing seed into people's life, teaching them about the gospel, letting them know who Jesus is. Some of us are singers and worshipers. Some of us are people who work behind the scenes, are prayer warriors. Some of us are reapers who are out there and pulling the people in, harvesting the souls, making the conversion communication occur. But it takes the sower and the reaper, Jesus said. But all of us benefit because that soul is brought into the kingdom of God. So it takes every one of us. What is your calling? That's what I want to ask you. Are you a sower? Are you a reaper? I know this one thing. I know this one thing to be absolutely true. No one in this congregation is just a sitter. God has not called you to warm a pew. God has called you to step out into the fields of harvest. Whatever form or fashion that takes, whether it's as a sower, as a reaper, as a worshiper, as a prayer, as a food preparer, God has called you. And you've got to step into that calling. The fields are ripe unto harvest. Don't wait. Don't walk into Sychar like the disciples did, looking for physical food. When this woman stepped in there and brought the entire village with her, so many of us are just like the disciples. We go about our our lives not realizing that God has divine appointments for us. The people that we meet, the souls that we interact with, those are people that God very well could be calling you to touch. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, beyond any shadow of a doubt, we are living in a time that is full of confusion, full of darkness. And I believe it is in this time of deep darkness, Lord, that it is just before the the dawn arises. I believe souls are waiting to hear the message of this gospel. Lord, I pray that you would take each one of us. You've called us. You've gifted us. You've placed us. Give us the courage, Lord, to step out 
into the fields of harvest and to make an impact in whatever fashion you direct us to, Lord. And we give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.